just going to really dive straight into uh, things today. Uh, no sort of fancy introduction, although I do have some props in a second. But uh, if you've got a Bible, we're actually going to start back in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, so if you've got an actual Bible open or on your, on your uh, screen of some kind, uh, flick back to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 20. That's where we'll start. Uh, it's Paul's uh, big vision of who Christ is. Uh, so if you've got it open in, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, uh, first in verses 15 to 17, uh, Paul shows us that Christ is supreme, right? He's kind of preeminent uh, when it comes to this creation. Right, so you see there from verse 15, Paul says, uh, the Son uh, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right, firstborn there, not meaning that there was a point where Jesus uh, didn't, where God the Son didn't exist, uh, but that uh, that Christ, that the Son of God, the Son of God the Father, uh, is the heir, the rightful heir of everything, of all things. Right, all of creation belongs to Him. He's the Son. Uh, because verse 16, why does it all belong to Him? Uh, For verse 16, in Christ all things were created. Uh, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? So all of creation belongs to Christ, God's Son, uh, because it was all created through him and for him, and it's held together by him. So that means, what does that mean? It means that uh, when humanity relates to God the Father and to Christ his Son as supreme, right, as the, the centre of their lives, as the sun uh, around which their life orbits, when that happens, uh, the world is full of life and peace and wholeness. Right, when that happens, which is uh, where my props come in, right? So it could be uh, this kind of perfect world could be represented uh, by this uh, wonderful, uh, brand new, uh, without blemish, uh, completely whole pot. Uh, it even has all things written on it. Uh, clearly, it represents all of creation. Uh, just use your imagination a little, right? So this is all things uh, kind of under the supremacy of God the Father and of Christ his Son, perfect and whole and full of life and blessing. It's a wonderful place, a wonderful place. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, of course, the track record of humanity, right, from, from the time of Adam, is that we don't relate to God the Father or to Christ his Son as supreme. So instead of a world that's full of life and peace and wholeness, we've got the world that we live in, uh, a world full of death and hostility and brokenness which once again could be represented by this pot if I just uh, take all things and uh, put it into this pillowcase. You see? And then take this hammer. This is, this is the effects of sin, right? This is in Adam, this is what our world is like. It's not full of life and peace and wholeness. It's a fragmented mess, you see. That's the effects of our stubborn refusal to live under the supremacy of God the Father and of Christ his Son. It leads to uh, lives, it leads to a break in the relationship between us and God, between us and one another. Uh, the creation itself is broken. Our relationship with creation is broken. 
the whole world is in pieces uh, because of, of our sin. Uh, but God is good, isn't he? He's gracious. That's, that's Paul's point in this section. Uh, so in Christ, his son, he's committed to putting back together the pieces of our world, uh, to reconciling them, to setting them right. So if you look here in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church. Uh, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Right, firstborn again, right? Again, it means, it carries the idea that Christ is the rightful heir. So what's Paul saying? He's saying all of, of this creation belongs to Christ and all of the new creation belongs to Christ. And the new creation that Paul says we see first in Christ's own resurrection from the dead, right, as he conquers death, and second, in his church, in us, in the body of Christ, over which Christ is already supreme, you see. He's already the head of his body. So in Christ, Paul says, God is creating a new creation with a new humanity and his new humanity is us. It's the, it's the church. How is he doing that? Look in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Sorry, Paul's, Paul's saying that, that in Christ's death on the cross, God has paid the price, not just for us to be at peace with him, but for all things to be at peace, right? For all the, the, the fragmented pieces of our relationships, our world, uh, to be reconciled, to be set right, to, to be made whole again, to be healed. Now, that's what Paul's saying God is doing in Christ, and he's saying that that process of things being reconciled and set right, uh, put back together, that process starts right here in the church. The body of Christ, over which Christ is already supreme, and in our lives, God is putting back, to the, uh, putting back together the pieces of this broken world. He's putting back together the pieces of our broken and sinful lives. So what does that mean? Why have I given this big introduction? I think it will help us to remember two things as we look at today's passage. And the first thing I want us to remember is that we shouldn't expect too little. We are God's people. We are in Christ. We're not primarily in Adam. Right? We're primarily in Christ now. We've, we've been talking about that throughout Colossians. And that means it's our job to work out what it looks like to live under the, uh, so the supremacy of God the Father and of Christ his Son as we were always intended to, you see. So that, that, that's what Paul's going to be unpacking today in marriage and parenting, uh, next week in, our wor in workplaces, in the week after that in how we relate to the wider world. All of this is how do we relate how do we live under the supremacy of God the Father and of Christ, his Son? And as we seek to do that, we have to remember two things. The first is that we shouldn't expect too little. Paul knows that he's writing to people who are new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who've heard and experienced the reconciling power of the gospel. So what does he expect? He expects them to actually change. He expects them to live differently, to live radically countercultural lives. Because sometimes when God puts back together the pieces of our life, 
He does it in ways that we don't expect. That's the point. This is God himself putting back together the pieces of our lives. It kind of makes sense that it would be a bit countercultural sometimes. So that's the first thing. We we shouldn't expect too little. We should expect to, to actually change. God has and can and will change us. We're in Christ. And yet we shouldn't expect too much. In this passage, Paul's going to give us a picture of what marriage and parenting, really what they should look like, I think. God's vision for marriage and parenting. But we know that often they don't look like that. Because God still has a whole lot of work to do on our lives. We're a mess. And there's change. We ought to expect change. We ought to strive for the vision. We shouldn't chuck out the vision. Uh, but we uh, should acknowledge that often we fall short. So we've just got to live with this tension. Right? New creations in the Lord Jesus Christ called to live a different way, uh, but often struggling to live that way, uh, not because God's way is wrong, but because of our own brokenness and sin. Right? That's kind of big picture introduction to this whole section. So what does it look like in marriage? for us to, to, to be God's new humanity whom he's putting together the pieces of our lives. Look, Ian, um, you notice in your outline, I'm going to deal with uh, Paul's words to husbands and to parents before I deal with his words uh, to wives and children. But I, I just think that will give us some helpful context. Uh, so look, in verse 19, uh, Paul says to Christian husbands, Husbands, love your wives and uh, do not be harsh with them. Uh, the word love there, it's the same word that Paul used back in verse 12. If you've got a Bible, you're in chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, he talked about how we as God's people are dearly loved by God. Right? Where we're treasured by him, where we're cherished by him. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 5 to, to describe Christ's love for his church. Right? His radically self-sacrificial love. So in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Same word. And gave himself up for her. Now, of course, we hear that and we go, that's just normal. right? Of course, husbands should love their wives. I mean, in Paul's day, that, was, that, was, that would have been, that sounded ridiculous. Radically countercultural. In Paul's day, men did not get married because they loved their wives. They got married to to build the family unit, to maintain the social order, to to build alliances within their local community. So when Paul calls Christian husbands to love their wives, it is radically countercultural. But as I said, that's kind of what happens when the God of the universe is putting the broken and sinful pieces of your life back together. Sometimes it happens in ways that you don't expect. So let's get practical. Husbands, how can we love our wives? Uh, well, uh, we can. I'm going to talk about some different categories. Maybe it's useful, maybe not, but that's what we're going to do. So we, we, perhaps we can love them physically uh, by treating them with real tender affection. Now, every couple is different with this. I understand. You know, some couples, uh, they, they kind of 
practically make you vomit because they can't keep their hands off one another. Uh, other couples, you kind of wonder whether they ever go near one another and then you see that you've got, they've got kids. You're like, well, I guess it happened once, right? Uh, so uh, at least once. Uh, so you know, like, every couple's different. Uh, but whatever it looks like in your marriage, husbands, let me encourage you uh, to show your wife some tender affection to love her physically and love her emotionally. There are all sorts of ways you could do that, but, but a, a key one is certainly by genuinely listening to her. Uh, not listening to correct her or to fix her. Well, I'm good at that, uh, right? Uh, but listening to understand, to, to really seek to empathise. I wasn't sure about this category, but I was trying to think of other things. It, 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 I've come up with love your wife socially. The kind of things I was thinking of were, was freeing her up to have time by herself. Freeing up to, to be able to go and see a friend if she wants to, or visit her family. E- even to have some time with you. Right? Uh, once again, couples are different with that kind of thing. Some couples uh, think that you're almost kind of sub-Christian if you don't have a date night locked in every week. You know, they get very panicky about that. I'm like, oh, are you guys okay? You know? Right? Uh, but uh, other couples kind of can't remember the last time they had a conversation for more than two minutes that wasn't about managing the house or the kids, you see. Right, so whatever it looks like for you, let me encourage you, husbands, uh, love your wives by planning a date at least every now and then. Some quality time together. Uh, and let's love our wives spiritually. Uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the, the result of Christ's love for uh, his bride, his church, uh, is that the church is made holy. The church is made radiant it's spiritually. It's beautiful. And that's what Christ does, right? I'm not saying husbands have to be Christ, right? Christ does that by the power of his word and his spirit. Uh, but we are called to be like Christ. Uh, to love our, lives, our wives in such a way uh, that spiritually they become more like the Lord Jesus. More holy and radiant and, and, and beautiful. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways you could do that. Uh, maybe you can make sure your wife gets some time, particularly if you've got kids. Like make sure she gets some time to read the Bible. But try to make it work so she can attend a gospel community, uh, to go to that Women's Day or that conference. Right? Those things are helpful ways of loving your wife spiritually. That's the first thing. Husbands, Christian husbands are called uh, to love their wives. And of course, a husband who loves his wife like that would never, ever be harsh with them. I would never be physically harsh. I don't know, like, let's get specific, right? A, a husband who is loving like this would never hit his wife or grab his wife or push his wife, would never seek to restrain her in any way, would never engage in any kind of physical abuse, ever. It's completely unacceptable. And of course, we, we don't have to lay a hand on our wives to be physically harsh with them, do we? Husbands here know that. You can slam a door in an intimidating way. You can punch a wall. Haven't touched your wife. You can loom over her in a threatening way. But all of that is completely unacceptable for a Christian husband. But for a husband who is seeking to, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do with his power? He laid it down. 
lay down his life. You want to be a powerful man? Lay down your power. Right? Don't use your power to dominate your wife. Uh, in that context, uh, some of you might be interested. Uh, uh, there's a, a stack of these. Uh, the Presbyterian Church are recognizing, I guess, uh, teachings of passages like this and the issue of domestic violence, family violence. Uh, last year issued a, a formal statement, I guess a position statement on this issue. Let me just read a section. There, there's a stack of them on the back table. Uh, you can grab one after. Just to wrap up this thing about being physically harsh. Uh, any attempt to twist the biblical teaching to tacitly sanction domestic violence or abuse is a gross perversion of the Bible's teaching. Domestic and family violence is repugnant to God and an anathema to the biblical model of sacrificial love and service. I don't want anyone to be in any doubt. That's what I think. That's what our church thinks about this whole idea of being remotely even harsh with our wives physically. It's just disgusting. Uh, we can be emotionally harsh, putting your wife down constantly, being constantly uh, overly critical of her, maybe calling her names. You can go the contempt eye roll. You know, Your wife says, oh, you would do that. You would say that. Typical. Right, if that, that becomes a regular pattern, that, that's harsh. Oh, we can be socially harsh, you know, where we're so demanding of our wife that she can't get two seconds by herself. She could never go and see a friend or spend time with her family. Certainly not have a date with us. Oh, we can be spiritually harsh when we don't ever pray for her. When we don't encourage her with, the wor uh, with God's word. When we uh, perhaps expect our wives to do all the work of discipling the kids. Well, I get it. Some, some, uh, you know, some, in some marriages, the husband's working long hours. You think, oh, you know, my wife will just take care of all that. Well, no, take some responsibility. But all that is harsh to our wives. Over time, it creates a marriage that instead of being full of love, right, the, the, the husbands love your wives, instead of that, it's full of resentment and bitterness. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so in that context, we come to verse 18, uh, where Paul says, uh, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, uh, as is fitting in the Lord. Now I've said, God's putting back together the pieces of our lives. His words to Christian husbands, in, in, in Paul's words to Christian husbands in Paul's day, radically countercultural. And I know that his words here to Christian wives in our day are even more countercultural. In fact, for lots of you, it's not just that these words are a bit awkward or a bit jarring or a bit controversial, uh, it's that they're downright offensive. Uh, maybe because you personally uh, have been abused by a man who invoked these kind of words. You know, might not have quoted the verse. But the gist, the, the sentiment was there. Or, or maybe like me, it's not so much you personally, but, but you've heard the, the painful stories from channels of hope, from a, a friend, a family member uh, who was abused, who has been abused by a man who once again invoked these words. So I don't know, like what do we do with that? I've been wrestling with this all week. 
we could say that God's way is wrong. That this whole idea of wives submitting to their husbands, which it's just in multiple places throughout the New Testament, so we could say that that, that that is not for the good of our marriages. That God got it wrong. Now, I, I, I just can't bring myself to say that in good conscience. But what I can say is that we've got to be, because of the brokenness, right? God, I guess this is the tension I'm wrestling with. Because we're in Christ, we've got the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit, we can, God can actually empower us to live this out. But we're still broken and sinful. So we've got to be careful. We've got to be really careful. And so that's what I want to talk about. How can we carefully understand this passage and how can we carefully apply it without throwing out this teaching altogether? Uh, so first, uh, uh, a couple of things to notice in the, in the actual text. Notice that uh, Paul says that Christian wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. Right, so so whatever, whatever this submission uh, means, it's never something that a husband is to demand or, or force or to manipulate. It, it's never that. Now, husbands aren't coming to their wives and saying, submit. That is just, that's not on, right? Whatever this is, uh, wives are to freely submit to their husbands. And I think it's because they know they're safe. They're secure in the fact that their husbands love them and will not be harsh with them, which is how these things fit together, you see. It's why I dealt with that verse first. And second, we've got to recognize that the Bible uses this word submission in lots of different relationships but it absolutely never implies that some sort of inherent inequality between the two parties uh, involved in the relationship, in, the, in this case, husbands and wives. In fact, Christianity uh, is consistent uh, with the fact that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal. We heard about that in ch Channels of Hope. Equal in dignity, in worth, in status before God. Uh, it's true in creation and new creation. Right, in creation, both created in God's image, both given the task of, of ruling over creation together on God's behalf. Absolute equality. In new creation, 1 Peter 3 verse 7, Peter says that husbands and wives are co-heirs of the gift of salvation. In Galatians 3 verse 28, Paul says that in Christ, everyone's equal. Right, the Bible consistently teaches that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal in dignity, in worth, in status before God. But here's the question. Does that equality mean, have to mean, that God gives men and women exactly the same roles in the, in the Christian home? Does it have to mean that? I don't, I don't think so. And, I, and as I read the Bible, it just doesn't seem to be the case. And before you just kind of go, oh, I'm cringing, you know. Even apart from the Bible, right? apart from any Christian belief whatsoever, I think there are plenty of situations in life where we think it's completely appropriate for, for two people of absolutely equal worth to have a relationship in which one person submits to the other. All sorts of relationships where we think that that's fine. A child and their parents, a student and their teacher, a player and their coach, an employee and their employer, a citizen and their government. There's just to name a few, right? All sorts of relations. I'm not saying all those relationships are the same. I'm just saying that it's at least possible 
to conceive of a relationship where two people who are absolutely equal and where one party voluntarily uh, acts in a submissive way toward the other. It's not unusual. It's not isolated to this particular relationship. I guess that's all I'm saying. Uh, Which really leads to the third thing. I think it's the most important thing. Have a look at the wording Paul uses in the second half of this verse. Uh, This whole idea of Christian wives submitting to their husbands, he doesn't say, for this is shameful. He doesn't say, for for this is something tolerable. He says, it's fitting. So, like, it's appropriate somehow, even honourable, for someone, for a Christian wife who is in the Lord, who's in Christ, whose life is being put back together you see, by the power of the gospel. So what do we do with that, right? How is it possible for a Christian wife to, to, not, to not only not hate this idea of submission, but to somehow think it's fitting? Because that's what, that's what Paul says, it's fitting. Well, I, let me give you two suggestions, right? They're both kind of hopefully gospel suggestions. Uh, the first is that it's fitting because... Uh, a Christian wife is a part of the church, the, the bride of Christ, and a reader of Ephesians 5, that the bride of Christ freely submits to Christ. And in that context, uh, they submit because they, they've seen the love of Christ put on display at the cross. Right? So in that sense, it's fitting. It's gospel-fitting for a Christian wife who's deeply secure in the love of her husband to submit to her husband. It's also fitting in the Lord, but because Christ himself, and let's be like Christ himself, who was absolutely equal with God his Father, absolute equality, and yet he chose to submit to his Father, willingly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his father, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? Christ God's Son. Absolute equality, dignity, worth. The the, the second person of the Trinity. And yet he submits to his father because he knows that his father loves him. He's heard his father when he was baptized. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He's heard his father at the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. He knows that he's loved. It's safe for him to submit to his father. He's secure. So it's fitting, Paul says. And when with her eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian wife humbly submits to her husband. Because she knows that her husband's eyes are also fixed on Christ. So he'll lovingly serve her. That's the picture here. This is fitting because it's a a glorious picture of the gospel. The great truths of what Christ has done for us. Of course, it's absolutely not fitting if a husband's demanding submission. It's not fitting in the Lord for that. It's not fitting if the husband, uh, if submitting to her husband would lead a woman to disobey Christ. That's not fitting in the Lord. 
And it's not fitting if her husband's treating her in a way that is consistently unloving and harsh, that, that completely undermines the other part of this passage, you see. That is not fitting. But where both of these things are happening together and it's giving uh, a picture of the cross of Christ, uh, then it is gospel fitting. Fitting in the Lord. So that's me trying to understand it carefully. Best attempt. Uh, What about applying it? Uh, Because application is difficult. There's all sorts of uh, cultural uh, baggage that kind of gets thrown into this. Uh, submission, of course, it doesn't mean that uh, Christian wives can't have an opinion. You know, we heard about the kind of in the Solomon Islands, uh, the Pacific, you know, it's revolutionary for them to be involved in decision making, to, ha- to have their views heard. Right? That's not what submission means. In fact, in many situations, Christian wives uh, will be much, much better informed than their husbands, and their husbands would be absolutely foolish not only to seek their opinion, but to be led by their opinion. A submission doesn't mean that Christian wives uh, can't have a successful career, for example. That they've got to become housewives who only kind of have babies and bake cakes and, and do cleaning or something. Right? It, it doesn't mean that. Some of you, that might be what you want. That's a wonderful thing. But it is absolutely not a requirement of biblical submission. It's not like it's here in the text. right? Paul, we've got great freedom in terms of how this looks. Right? You, can be, uh, you can live this out uh, and still be uh, incredibly driven and, and intelligent and competent. And a loving and wise husband will seek to empower you in those things. Uh, so if that's what submission doesn't mean, what does it mean? It, it is a bit tricky. Because I get it, like it, it's sort of a, an attitude, a spirit. Uh, But in general, in a nutshell, I think it means that God calls Christian wives to submit to their husband's desire, to love them, to serve them. And I'm going to use another L word, I know it's dangerous, but to love them, to serve them and to lead them in God's ways. And the vast majority of the time, I think, if you have a godly husband who's living out uh, this passage, and I know that's a big if, but if you've got that, then I I think that, that probably won't be too onerous. For example, maybe as you submit to your husband's desire to love you by, by being the first to say sorry when you have a fight. That's leadership. It's dying to yourself leadership, but it's loving, sacrificial leadership. Or maybe uh, he stands up for you in a conversation that you've found hard to have. I'm not saying you can't stand up for yourself, but sometimes that can happen, and it's a great thing if he does that. And actually, there's a part of you that might lament it if your husband doesn't have the balls to do it. Right, and occasionally, it might be a bit trickier. I actually have never experienced this. I've only been married, what is it, nearly 12 years. Uh, but I've never experienced this in my marriage, but occasionally I've heard of situations where a husband might come to his wife and say, Gertrude, you know, like we've been dis- working for months uh, to decide, uh, you know, which school to send the kids to or which town we should live in or whether you or I should t- take that job. Uh, and it's just coming down to it. Like we've got to make a call. 
I've heard of situations where, where the husband will say, oh, I've been praying about it, I've been I'm thinking about it, I really feel we should do this. Or we just can't kind of spin the wheels forever. I, I th- honestly think it's the best thing for you, for our family, it brings glory to God, and if it doesn't work out, I take complete responsibility. You know, it's my head on the... As I said, that's never happened for me. The vast majority of the time, all the time in our marriage, decision-making has been completely mutual. But maybe this might happen. And in that moment, assuming that you're secure in your husband's love for you, that he's got a track record of seeking your good and the good of your family, God calls you to submit to his desire, to do what is best for you, for your family, for the glory of God. So last week, Paul urged us to set our hearts and minds on things above. That was chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. To set our hearts and minds on Christ, who's already above at the right hand of God. And if we want to live out this teaching, if we've got any hope of living it out, that's what we have to do. Fix our hearts and minds on Christ. As husbands do that, uh, the more our our heart and mind are gripped by Christ's sacrificial, servant-hearted love for us, the more we'll be able to love our wives like that. There's no, there's no shortcut uh, apart from fixing our eyes on Christ. And, and wives, uh, the more your heart and mind is gripped by Christ's well, his humility, his submission in not only becoming a human being, we're going to talk about that in, at Christmas, but in being obedient, as Philippians 2 says, to death on a cross. Uh, the more you, your heart's gripped by those things, the more uh, you'll be able to humbly submit to your husband. Happy to talk about this later at some point if you've got more questions. We've got to move on to parenting. Uh, Verse 21. Let's look at verse 21. Paul says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Uh, The Greek there does just have fathers uh, in part because Paul, actually in this passage, you've got husbands, then fathers, and then masters in the slave-master relationship. In Paul's day, all of those roles would have been filled by the one man. Right, big household, he's the husband, he's the dad, and he's the one who manages the slaves. Right, all the same person. Right, but here I think it's completely appropriate for us to apply it to both parents. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, there's no uh, children here, so I'm going to apply it uh, mainly to parents, or few children, anyway. Uh, so what sort of things might we do as parents that embitter and discourage our children? I've I got seven things. Uh, they're going to be real brief. Uh, some of them came from a talk that Mark Driscoll did, uh, Helpful Wisdom. Uh, so the first thing is, uh, and once again, you, you'd maybe hope this would go without saying, but clearly it doesn't with domestic and family violence. Uh, and that is that we embitter and discourage our kids if we physically or verbally abuse them. Well, we shouldn't lash out at our kids. We shouldn't threaten our kids. We shouldn't insult our kids. Right, that will make them bitter towards you. A second, uh, we embitter and discourage our kids when we're physically present but emotionally absent. Now, I do this. right? In the midst of all life's pressures, it, it's really easy for me to be in the house, to be at the dinner table. I'm physically present, but my mind's completely elsewhere. I'm not emotionally attuned to the kids. I'm not being attentive to them. I'm on my phone. I'm sending emails. My mind's consumed with all sorts of things. In the end, I'm consumed with myself more than them. And if that becomes a repeated pattern, that's really discouraging for kids. 
A third, we embitter and discourage our kids uh, when we make more withdrawals than deposits. And this is true of any relationship. Right? All relationships are really like bank accounts, uh, encourage, words of encouragement, uh, deposits, uh, words of critique, uh, withdrawals. Uh, and both are needed if you're parenting. Of course, you need both of those things. Uh, but I, I, the trouble is sometimes our relationships with our kids get really, like we're in massive debt. You know, no news is good news. Uh, our parents only hear from us. Uh, our kids only hear from us if they've done something wrong. You know, everything's going well, critique. Everything's going well, critique. You know, and, and over time, that's really discouraging. Our relationships don't go well. Uh, fourth, really briefly, uh, favoritism's discouraging. You know, just read the, the story of Jacob and his sons. It didn't work out well there uh, with Joseph and the, the coat and all that kind of thing. Right, so our, our kids need to see that we're consistent. Right, between our different children. We're not playing favourites. Fifth, um, correcting our kids before we've instructed them is discouraging. And they're kind of like, I didn't even know that was wrong, and you're kind of telling me, it's, you know, giving me discipline for it. Right, we've got to take responsibility for our bit. Let's teach them right and wrong, lay down the, the boundary, and then when they break it, oh, let's discipline. Uh, six, uh, it discourages our kids when we don't distinguish between sins and mistakes. I don't know if you've felt this tension as a parent. You know, Charlie, is, he's learning to drink a couple of milk uh, and he spills it. Of course he does, like, right? That, that's what you do when you're learning to do something. It's, I don't have to discipline him for that. It's annoying when the milk's spilled everywhere, but it's a mistake, not a sin. You see, it's not a sin until he, which he does now, he deliberately throws it over his shoulder or something. Like, that, that's discipline, right? But... So we've got to distinguish between sins and mistakes. And seven, it's discouraging for our kids if we never say sorry to them. Right? Like, this is us. Let's not have any illusions of where we're at. We're broken, we're sinful, we're messed up. We will hurt our children. We'll do the wrong thing. And we actually, we have to, they need to hear us say sorry to them and ask for forgiveness. If they don't hear us say that, it gets, well, it can make them bitter towards us. Especially if we're always on them to say sorry. Which you, you probably are. Right? So that's parents. Uh, that's us as parents. Look at verse 20. Paul speaks to children. Our children, obey your parents in everything, uh, for this pleases the Lord. Uh, Ken's question in the kids talk was interesting, uh, like in terms of uh, what is a child, right? That's a probably more complex question than he might have realised. But because actually, like, it, uh, we don't know how old these children are that Paul's writing to, but in our culture, uh, many kids are living at home in uh, winter well into their 20s, into their 30s. So what kind of relationship does Paul expect them to have with their parents? So are these verses for them? Kind of absolute obedience? You're a child living at home under your parents' roof? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, someone, one of the kids actually quite insightfully said, our child is uh, someone who's under 18. Well, I think in general, that's a reasonable definition. If a particular culture says that uh, uh, this child is a child by their law and customs and traditions, then it's fair to say that that child's a child. It gets a bit blurry if you choose to live home past 18. Or you've got to work that out with the your parents, right? Sometimes that's explicit, sometimes it's just in the kind of push-pull of, of living at home together, right? But in general, I think these words uh, are addressed to children uh, under 18. 
And Paul calls them uh, to obey their parents. And I guess I would say, like, I mean, Ken's already spoken to the kids, but I would say, uh, I think as parents, uh, we need to be convinced that it's for our children's spiritual good that they obey us. We actually need to, like Paul's saying that here, we have to, it's for their good that they obey us. Uh, obeying you means that they listen to you, whether they don't ignore you or pretend that you don't exist or, or practice kind of selective deafness. You know, with my kids, like they, they won't hear me ever saying, you've got to pick up your toys, but uh, they could hear like a chocolate wrapper crinkling from 10 blocks away, right? Like, like the, the, the ears are just supersonic when that kind of, you know, and so uh, our kids actually have to listen to us. And when they listen, they actually have to do what we ask. Not their version of what we ask. I'll put, put the toys away. Oh, I'll put two away. No, no, the toys, like all the toys. Right? They have to do what we ask. And another classic is that they have to do what we ask when we ask. You know, they say, oh, I'll put the toys away. Yeah, I'll do that in a second. I'll put the toys away. No, I'll do that when I'm... Re- Obedience is doing what we ask when we ask, not when they're good and ready. Now, of course, there's some grace in that. You know, sometimes there might be a good reason to you know, give them an extra few minutes or whatever. Like, But in general, that's what Paul's saying. Uh, and he's saying that uh, children should obey their parents like this in everything, uh, which, of course, seems pretty comprehensive, everything. Uh, of course, there are some caveats on that. Right? If a, if a parent uh, is uh, requiring their child to obey them in such a way that it would mean disobeying their Lord, Christ, then that's... That's obedience that's not pleasing to him. Uh, if a parent's requiring something that's illegal or unbiblical. Right? The, 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 so even though Paul uses the word everything, I'm pretty sure if you had a chance to sit down with him, he, he, there'd be some kind of you know loopholes there. Uh, but in general, this is what uh, Paul's saying, is for the spiritual good of our children that they obey their parents. And he says uh, that this is pleasing, uh, that these children ought to do this because it's pleasing to Christ their Lord. Notice that he addresses the children directly, which is interesting in and of itself. Like He seems to assume that these are children who are a part of God's people, who are in Christ, uh, who uh, ought to be concerned about living in a way that pleases their Lord. And he says, and, and the reason this is pleasing is that, our, is that my kids' willingness to listen to and obey me is a sign of their willingness to listen to and obey Christ. It's not the only sign. But their willingness to live under my loving authority and respect it and hear it and obey it has deep spiritual significance. It pleases the Lord when children do that because it's a sign of their willingness to listen to uh, and respect and to live under uh, his loving authority. So here's it, you know, back to my pot, just to finish. Uh, this is us, right? Uh, God has taken us and, and he's brought us into Christ. And Paul says that in Christ, he's reconciling all things. Uh, in your life and in my life, he's putting back together all these broken pieces uh, in every area of our lives, uh, including our marriage and our parenting. And last week we saw uh, that he's transforming us into a people that truly reflect his glory. He created Adam uh, in his image to reflect his glory. 
Uh, but Adam did a poor job of that. Uh, and so now in Christ, uh, uh, in the new humanity, he's, he's putting back together our lives to make a people that truly reflect his glory, uh, in our, including in our marriages and in our parenting. Uh, so I'm going to pray that, uh, that God would do this work by the power of his word and his spirit. Uh, Father, um, uh, we thank you that uh, you have indeed brought us into your people as we've heard and believed the true gospel, uh, that we have been uh, reconciled with you uh, by the blood of our Lord Jesus that was shed on the cross. Uh, but we thank you that your uh, vision uh, for um, your work in and through Christ, your vision for your world is much bigger than just us being reconciled to you, but that all the pieces of our world would be put back together. Uh, we pray in particular, Father, that you would put back together uh, the pieces of our lives uh, in our marriages. Pray that, uh, that husbands would love their wives and not be harsh with them. We pray that wives would uh, willingly, uh, knowing that they're safe in their husband's love, would humbly uh, respect and uh, be submissive towards their husbands. We pray that uh, as parents that we wouldn't provoke and discourage our kids, making them bitter. And we pray for our children, uh, that as uh, new creations, as they become new creations in Christ, that they would be concerned about pleasing their Lord and that they would see that their willingness to uh, live under our loving authority as their parents uh, is a sign of their willingness to live under the loving authority of our Lord Jesus. Uh, we know that we can't do this. We just can't do this uh, by ourselves, Father. Uh, but we know that you, uh, by the power of your word and your spirit, are, are doing this work in us. And so we pray that you would help us to uh, surrender to you and allow you to uh, do this work in our lives. Amen.